0: All right, everybody, welcome to This Week in Startups and the first episode of Liquidity. This is a podcast where I'm trying to put together a little bit of uh, a mix of GPs and LPs, and David Wisebird is going to help me moderate because I, as a GP, want to contribute, and David's done such an excellent job moderating. So, David, why don't you kick us off?
1: This week, we have a very exciting episode. We have, of course, the world's greatest moderator, Jason Calacanis. And a special guest, Michael Kim from Sandana Capital, one of the top LPs on the planet. Guys, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on my podcast, David. Uh, <laughs> great job moderating last week. No pressure. No Thank
2: you, Jason. Pressure. No yeah. pressure. And it's great <laughs> to God. see both of you on together.
0: Yeah, we're, we're doing a bunch of experimentation over here at This Week in Startups, trying to get some uh, new faces involved in some new formats. So here we go, uh, a roundtable with an LP and a GP.
1: All right. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you, Jason. Let's get started. The Wall Street Journal reported this week that LPs are doubting venture fund startup marks. Teresa Hager from Cambridge Associates, which advises over half a trillion in institutional capital, stated in the article that whether LPs can trust valuations from VCs today is a very relevant question. Michael, why don't you start by giving a quick bio on yourself to the audience. Sure. I'm
2: the founder of Sundana Capital. I started about 12 years ago. We have about $2 billion under management, and we focus solely on seed and pre-seed funds. So we, as an LP, are making commitments to these funds. We view ourselves as the lead investor, uh, not only by check size. We do write 10 to $25 million checks, but also because we work so closely with our fund managers and ultimately want to be their trusted advisor. So I think we have a pretty good perspective on how our fund managers are thinking and and what they're seeing. And this is uh, globally. So we invest predominantly in the U.S., but also outside as well.
1: Tell me about this Wall Street Journal article. Do you think that this is commonplace? Is this a one-off? How commonplace is it for GPs to overstate their marks? I think
2: it's not so much overstating it, but rather perhaps being a little bit slow on the draw in terms of marking things down i would say that you know we we talk about this a lot with our fund managers and for the most part i'd say that they're they're quite good at marking things down some better than others and you know in terms of actual the the markdowns that came over the past 2 years the bulk of it actually came by q3 of 2022 because that's when you know the Nasdaq was going down 33, percent and especially the later stage companies. I think our fund managers did a, a really good job of actually sort of marking to market and doing sort of comparables analysis and saying, "Oh, this $10 billion company that that got valued uh, in 2021 at at 100x revenue multiples that's just unrealistic, and 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 it's closer to like 10 times, maybe 20 times." So we saw the bulk of our markdowns come in um, in the second half of 2022. And uh, yeah, I'm getting confused by the years. I know it's January. Um, <laughs> it's going
0: fast right now, isn't it? Yeah, it's 2024 now, Michael. Okay, got it. Yeah. And
2: interestingly, over the past four quarters, there's been sort of low single digit markdowns. And in fact, there are newer funds. We've actually had markups because you know these seed stage companies actually doing the series A's, that, that brings you a markup. And so I, I, the, the punchline is, You know, I think uh, the bulk of the marks came, uh, markdowns came in 2022. But to answer your question more specifically, you know, uh, do LPs worry about this? Absolutely. And in in the context, actually, of their asset allocation. So you might have heard about the denominator effect. What that really means is if you're a university endowment and you have a big pool of public equities and that went down, you know, 40% in 2021, suddenly you're a private Uh, portfolio is over allocated. And so, you know, what generally happens is the private markets um, in in private markets, you know, PE and venture, the, the, the marks start coming down, but so there's a lag time and it's sort of that, that trough or that, uh, that period of time where the, the private marks haven't really caught up to the public marks that LPs get um, all twisted up. So I think we're actually past that. And, um, you know, I think it's, very rare to have an, uh, a fund manager that has, you know, a decacorn in their portfolio that hasn't at least been looked at in terms of, of current marks.
1: Let's get to brass tacks on that. Let's say you have a fund manager and they're marking up their book, you know, or they're not marking down their book. Would this preclude you from investing in them? Is this like, uh, you know, a, a deal breaker?
2: I think it's, it's it's a red flag, uh, maybe a yellow flag, but uh, p- perhaps even a red flag. You know, it's either that they're not on, on top of things, they're not sophisticated enough to know that, you know, they should be looking at the valuations that they're carrying at. Just one easy example is that, you know, does a fund manager mark their safe up uh, to, you know, for example, um, none of our fund managers do that, but, you know, you, you see that on occasion, but it is at least a yellow flag. And where we actually have the benefit of sort of our little perch is that you know we might have three fund managers in a specific company, and then we can actually see where each one's carrying them, and then we'll actually proactively talk to each one saying, "Hey, these guys are carrying it at 50 percent uh, markdown. Why are you carrying it at, at, at you know at, at the last round?" So we have an active discussion, and we don't see it that often. Um, I would say that in general, our fund manager has been pretty good about about marking things down but you know it it is it, it is something that uh writ large the venture capital community really needs to keep a better eye on and i i think that's uh i think that's why the lps are sort of on top of it for them
1: and jason you're an lp and 20 funds so you both have the gp hat uh but also the lp hat what are your thoughts on this
0: when i'm an lp in funds i'm i'm a very simple individual investor. Uh, As an LP, I don't answer to an investment committee. I'm the investment committee. I don't have a CIO or a family office set up as such. So, you know, I'm just looking at the MOIC, you know, the multiple of my invested capital, the two numbers, how much did I put in? I put a hundred thousand into this fund. And ultimately, how much did I get out? Now, of course, you can back into the IRR and everything. And, you know, I was kind of shocked as I became a fund manager, Michael, over time, and started seeing reports back from the people I was LPing. right, just that there was no standard here, there really is not a standard on valuations. No. And people were doing all kinds of cute things like, oh, somebody paid, you know, in a secondary market for shares of a company. So I invested in the shares were worth 10. But there was a secondary transaction that occurred at 15. So where do you mark that company, right? Yeah, um, exactly. Sh- should you take the high water mark of, you know, some secondary transaction that occurred? Who knows who's buying those shares, how sophisticated they are? Do you take the public market comps that you hear Brad Gerstner talk about all the time for SaaS companies and then apply them to private market companies? Well, the private companies might have different growth rates and the amount of cash they have in the bank, all this matters. And so there doesn't seem to be a gold standard of how to do this. Um, I'm just always in favor of being as intellectually honest and rigorous as possible and focusing on the DPI. Eventually, what do we distribute in terms of cash? That's what's going to matter. And I I, I had all these funds. It was very interesting. I'm sure you had this happen, Michael, as well. During this ZERP environment, 2019, 2020, 2021, some of them hit crypto, uh, you know, lotteries. And you just... People would be like, "Oh yeah, we're 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 six x fund," and I'm like, "Okay, we're sixty sell all the shares and close <laughs> right. shop yeah. like we're done here." And they're like, "Oh yeah, there's no ability to do that. There's nobody buying these crypto assets yeah, at exactly. that price." You know, no two years into the fund and they're six x. If you were two years into your fund, Michael, and the fund was six x, the correct thing to do would be start liquidating, right? Or
2: start thinking about it at least. Yeah, yeah. and and you know, there's obviously a discount for private securities, right? Um, and especially with tokens and actual crypto positions um you know the market in in a lot of them weren't deep enough so that they can actually unload mm. and so the proper thing there probably should have been to carry it at some sort of discount right
1: just to play devil's advocate i've had multiple lps i won't state them but i've had multiple lps basically telling me that there is incentive for the for for them for the marks to be uh held higher you know mike well, uh yeah at, at a lot of the top lps there's revolving doors there's institutions where every two years there's a new team and many LPs actually pay a bonus based on the marks. Um, so it's not only an issue, it's it's an issue of incentives. Do you not see that in some of your peers?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I know of different LP entities where the annual bonus is actually based on IRR, which I think is doesn't make sense to me because that IRR, especially if you have a young portfolio, can change so drastically, right? And I think, IRR, at least for us, we don't really look at IRRs until... Something's. You know, we might look at something that uh, might be ten years old, and then that gives you a, a useful metric to compare against other asset classes. But to look at an IRR right now of, even, let's say, just use an extreme example of a secondaries fund, right? A secondaries fund is buying something, let's say at fifty percent discount on their books. They will mark it back up to what the NAV is, and so right there you have you know thousand thousand percent IRRs. Now obviously that comes down over time. But you know, using IRRs uh, for a young portfolio doesn't make sense to me.
0: There's tons of incentives here. And I, I always try to think about, do we actually understand our portfolio? This is something I've worked on as you know, my organization has grown, we're on our fourth fund now, got 21 people, just making sure we actually understand what's happening at our companies. That's the bigger issue in many cases. So sure, you might have one GP getting cute and marking things up, another GP being super pessimistic and conservative. Uh, Most are probably doing something in between the two. But the more important thing is, are you on top of these companies and you know where they're headed? Because I've been, you know, I've had friends who have very large positions in a billion-dollar company that suddenly goes to zero, and they read about it in the press, and they didn't even know what was going wrong with that company. I think we saw Envision get blown out recently, right? And that was a company that was worth a couple of billion, I'm sure, Michael, some of your funds might have had exposure to it. And then all of a sudden, some top tier firm is now in the went from the first quartile to the fourth. And they didn't actually know it was happening. And I'm really examining myself as a fund wow. manager, right, and thinking, did I liquidate enough of these shares early? Because as a seed fund, we sometimes have opportunities to liquidate at 500 million a billion. And do, did we we do the right thing in terms of getting DPI from TVPI.
1: You have a pretty prolific and large portfolio. What's your best practice? What's your cadence and follow-up and how do you like to follow up with entrepreneurs?
0: We're building software to do it actually. So we we did two things that are unique. It's a great question. Um number one, we put into our side letters that we expect 10 updates a year from founders. Most founders do five. We then uh put in our firm the past year a primary and a secondary contact for every single startup. We then have every single startup in a Slack room and we have in our database their fo- cell phone numbers if we don't get an update we've also started to build software for this and so this year we started deploying the software very simple we ask people to answer five questions if they don't send updates number 1 how many employees do you have currently you know on january 1st what's the cash balance on january 1st what was your spend in december what was your revenue in december and then answer a question are you when are you planning to raise money next we're raising money we're not planning to raise money, three months, six months, next year. And when we just get the answers to like those five questions, we can do a lot of math. And we can look at over time, how many employees does this company have? And what's the burn? And what's the growth rate, etc. And once we get compliance on that, uh, it works out pretty well. And so it might take us five contacts with the founder to get an update. And we just tell them, hey, just give us these answer these five questions. And then I'll call them on the phone, I'll text them. Or can you imagine like, I call somebody on the phone and it's a, you know, a startup. And I'm like, hey, it's (laughs) J-Cal. And they're like, oh, this is the first time you have ever called me on my phone. And I'm like, yeah, hey, we sent like five emails. I know you're super busy. I don't want to be a pest. I know what it's like to run a company. But sometimes when people don't respond, it's because they're really struggling with something. We're here to help. So are you struggling with something? Is there anything we can help with? And man, people open right up right? They open right up. Uh, yeah, you know, we lost our salesperson. I lost my ops person. I lost my co-founder. We lost his big client. Everything's a disaster. We're thinking about shutting down and we can just have an <laughs> honest conversation. Right. And I think that's kind of the best practice I've, I've come to in my second decade, which is just giving founders permission to speak freely and not And then build a little software around it to scale it. It's a great question.
1: It's a two sided relationship. If you want founders to be honest with you, you have to be willing to take their honesty and to be productive and helpful.
0: Michael, you were going to say something about this approach. yeah?
2: Well, yeah, I mean, I I think that's a very uh, smart approach. And we we do some of that as well. You know, we structurally, we have um, monthly calls with each one of our fund managers, they're 30 minutes, they're no agenda, it's not a portfolio review. So you know, we let the fund manager talk about what they're thinking about, what they're seeing in the market. VCs being VCs, they want to talk about their best companies, so we get a lot of qualitative information around that. You know, new hires, new contracts, what the revenue is tracking to. We actually have a rolling list of companies that are coming up for funding over the next quarter or two, and uh, so you know, and, and we have a actually a Salesforce based uh, database, so we use that and we capture a lot of qualitative that data that way. But I think that discipline. Of doing monthly or bi-monthly calls is important for us to stay on top of where our fund managers are and actually where all the portfolio companies are, at least the value drivers.
0: Yeah. There was another company, pitch.com, I think that was in the news this past week. And I, you know, I hate to pick specific companies and you know beat up on them, whatever, but the co-founder and the founder were sort of talking publicly about it. But they had raised they were valued at a big number, raised a uh, uh, you know, some money they had, I think, you know, a small amount of money left. And, you know sometimes these things look really great on paper. And then when you dig under the hood, and you're looking at the reality of it, it, you know, somebody got really frisky with that last valuation, and they didn't grow into it. And you just have to sort of accept that. And man, it sucks when you have to mark things down or remove things from the portfolio. But we're in a power law game. So once you accept, this is a power law, you're going to hit, you know, two or three winners in your fund, and they're going to represent what, Michael? Ninety nine percent of the returns?
2: Yeah, vast majority.
0: Yeah, so you just you you have to understand the game that's being played on the field and manipulating these numbers or tweaking them, massaging them. It's just it's short term thinking.
2: Yeah, I mean, David, just bring it back to your original question. I think it buys a lot of goodwill for fund managers to err on the side of conservatism, being proactive in marking things down and being transparent to their LPs. I think LPs really appreciate it when the fund manager is telling them that we proactively mark this down and here are the reasons why. And that is an order of magnitude better uh, position to be in, an order of magnitude better dynamic than the LP having to look at a statement of in, uh, investments and say, hey, what's this mark? And then calling that GP up and saying, how come we didn't mark this down? What are you thinking? Um, the other point I'd want to make is that none of our fund managers mark things up unless it's a new round led by an outside lead. Hmm. You can argue that companies that raised in 2018 or 19 and they just are doing so well they haven't needed to mark up and now they're doing $500 million in revenue and they're profitable, but they're being held at $200 million valuation. You could argue that maybe you should mark that up. What do um, you do in I've that only,
0: situation? Yeah, I, I haven't seen that uh, yeah, happen I, too I,
2: often. I, we've we've seen it in just basically two companies out of 4,000 that we were in. And we told the fund manager that they should talk to their accounting firm and, uh, you know, get their thoughts on whether they should actually mark the market. Um, Hmm. But, you know, our our fund managers actually ended up not marking things up. So, yeah, yeah, I I appreciate that.
0: We had that happen um, with com.com that we invested at $4.5 we bought six percent of the company, and they just kept going up and to the right. But they were so capital efficient, they didn't need right. to raise money. The second round was two hundred fifty million. So between those two moments in time, we had it at four and a half million on the books, and three or four years—maybe it was four years later—boom! All of a sudden, they had this two hundred fifty million dollar round where we were able to sell some shares, a yep. modest amount, but you know we locked in like a five x for our investors selling ten percent at two fifty. <laughs> it was quite nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, we never, it never came across our minds to mark it up. We're always just focused on helping the companies and not playing any games with the marks.
1: Yep. How do you look at that, Michael? You've, you mentioned over 4,000 underlying portfolio companies. What do you want your GPs ideally to do when it comes to secondary?
2: That's a really interesting question because historically, uh, our fund managers have been pretty active with secondaries. And, you know, we were thinking about what, what's kind of like the right framework for this? Is it like, are you a 10? 10x MOIC on your original investment, or on your total investment, including the follow-ons, or is it a percentage of the fund that it'll, you know it'll return? Where the games can pl- uh, start creeping in is where you know they're very close to being 1x DPI, and they can they can get into carry by being uh, by selling some shares of a company. Then we actually have to worry about are they selling too early? But um, in general, I think our fund managers have been pretty good about actively thinking about how to get liquidity and I would say that at minimum um, they would be they would start considering selling a, a portion not all of it but a portion at at least a 10x and you know in general um, it's returned sort of 10 to 20 percent of their fund perhaps
0: I think that's pretty good numbers we we look to pair our position uh, when we're 10 20 30 40x by just 10 percent and uh, right. we did that with calm at 250 and then i think a billion and change and on that 376 investment. You always remember the winning numbers. 378 in a, you know, uh, we wound up selling 20% of our position. I think it wound up being about 12 or 13 million in total between those two transactions, like a million at the first one and 12 Mm -hmm. of the second. And um, I remember having a conversation with one LP, Michael, and they said, uh, Oh, my God, this is the best investment I ever had. I'm Congratulations or whatever. And I said, Yeah, we still have 80% of our shares. And they said, Oh, I don't understand. And I said, "We, We just sold a portion of our position. And they're like, I still don't understand. What do you mean? I'm like, Okay, we have this many <laughs> shares, 100,000 shares, let's say, a million shares, We sold 200,000, we still have the he's like, what? You're telling us there's, we could do five times that? And I was like, yeah, he just, it kind of broke the, the LP's brain right. that we, you know, had this happen and it happened with, um, you know, another SaaS company we had in Peak Zerp. Um, they went through our accelerator, became a unicorn. I think we we're able to clear 16 or 17 million on a million dollar cost basis by selling 14 or 15 percent of our position now, amazing you, you, you really have to take advantage of those moments and i i kick myself with uh robin uh we had so many opportunities you know at 30 and 40 dollars uh before they went public i really believe in that team i still do i've right. personally held all my shares but when we distributed i think we wound up distributing between you know maybe at 15 or 20 dollars, something in that range and, and, it, and it did go to 60 or 70 when it was public and so it's very hard to time the markets and uh yeah. You, know, you do the best you can.
2: The other advice I would always I give our fund managers is don't sell your entire position. Mm-hmm. So we've had two cases where our fund managers, one of them sold uh, uh, their entire position at a $300 million valuation, you know, high fives all around. But then we were thinking, uh-oh, why did they sell their entire position? <laughs> no, but um, they're currently, va- their last round was at $9 billion, and they are filing to go public. This would have, Made a 20x fund into a 100x fund,
0: which never happens. Yeah, it's yeah that that's would, would, that would
2: have been very rarefied uh, territory. We have another fund manager who was basically the co-founder of a company. He sold his entire position at a billion five. 000, 000, 000. The company's most recent round was done at twenty five billion. Oh. You could argue that maybe it's tr- it, the the true value is somewhere between six and eight. But again, he missed out on multiple turns of DPI. So you got to have schmuck insurance. You can't sell your whole position.
0: Just to talk personally about my personal Uber position, I still have a large portion of it. It's trading today. It broke a record. Um, But I sold a little bit back to the company years before the Moss around at $32 a share. Then I sold a little bit to Moss at, I think, $40 a share. You know, so I was able to pair the position, take care of my family, buy a home, you know, and, and do all that important stuff. Awesome right and still have so much skin in the game and i don't know that i'll ever ser- sell another share of um uber i just had dara on the pod and i just have so much faith in that company that i and i was talking to freeberg about google and i was like what if you he held on to your entire position or what oh, you yeah. he held onto his entire facebook position you right. know it's you have to think these things through you know keep some portion of your position because it's so rare to be on a rocket ship right so
2: david uh, what i'd point out is one way we think about our fund managers is are they sort of like starry eyed, you know, looking to save the world, just uh, dreamers finding great founders, or are they also, and I'm saying also, are they also hardcore investors? Are they actually thinking about making money? And uh, you know, you would think that VCs are all in it for that, but they're actually not. There are people who are just like in love with companies and what they're doing and the mission. You know, the, sort of the stereotype. But we all, we specifically look for investors, someone who's actively thinking. How am I going to make money? Does it make sense to actually think about a secondary here? You know, like Jake how described. It, that's that's ideal. You know, you always want someone to be thinking. When is the right time to exit? Perhaps not the entire position, but you know, some some portion of it, and actually make money.
0: There are contemporaries of mine who I've had conversations with who have said. I I don't want to sell in the secondary round. And I said, why? I'm selling, you know, whatever position. And they said, well, I don't want to make the founders feel bad. And I I, I don't want them to think I don't have faith in them. And to Michael's point, like there are big hearted folks in VC who he's, you know, what he's describing is not like a rare case. I think a lot of people feel this sense of loyalty. And when we had a group of founders say to us, hey, we're selling in secondary, will you pass on selling in secondary so that we can sell more? (laughs) Uh, Right.
1: This What'd you say to, to that? me,
0: and I talked to my team, and I and I I said, let me get back to you on that. I talked to a couple of my mentors, you know, very high profile VCs who've been in it for multiple decades, and uh, they said, well, you also you also work for the LPs, and so the language I came up with was, listen, we're pari parsu with you. Whatever percentage you sell will sell you. It's really in your best interest, is what I told them. You know, for the community, for me to be able to liquidate, so I can raise future funds so that I can help the next group of entrepreneurs. So I have to take advantage of this opportunity for my LPs, just so you know, for the ecosystem, it's good. And the founders like yeah, we totally get it, no problem. But you know, the founders took a shot, they went to all their investors and said, please don't, please decline selling secondary and they put a little pressure, not a lot. And I think, you know, probably worked with half the investors and the other half were like, "Mm, the LPs need to get a taste here too. They trusted us with those early investments and took the risk. So you have to be thoughtful.
1: And J. Cal secondary has been Controversial subject for, for decades in Silicon Valley, founders secondary. Is there a, sp- a specific amount of money that you, you think is good for founders to take off? Like, you know, what I you would think, feel Michael? very uncomfortable uh, if, if they were taking large positions give off. Give an especially exact early number, on. Michael. Yeah, give for the exact number. Two
0: founders, what could they take off each without you being worried? I have a number in mind. I want to hear Michael's first, though.
2: I think that if a founder would take, say, two million off the table, um, By the time the company is sort of at the Series B stage, that makes sense. I I think a secondary at Series A is utterly crazy. That's nice. And so, so generally, you see founder secondaries, it's sort of Series B, maybe, but typically even later stage, right? Series C or or later. I mean, ultimately, what you want to avoid is um, demotivating that founder. They have to maintain that hustle. And suddenly, if they have $100 million in their bank account, they may not wake up every morning. Um, worried about the company. They may not go to bed every night worried about the company. And I think there is to Jason and uh, Jason's point, there is and, and to David your question, there is probably a number and depends perhaps even on geography, but let's just say Bay Area. I would say that you know two to th- maybe three million uh, maybe helps reduce your mortgage payment or eliminates it, helps ensure that you, you, you have you're comfortable that you can cover your kids' schools and your living expenses. But you know, double digit millions is just ridiculous.
0: Yeah, my upper bound is ten million because after taxes is you know seven, um, six and a half, whatever it winds up being. Again, it really does based on geography, as Michael correctly pointed out. That was exactly what I thought of. What is your primary residence going to cost? If it's a family, if it's in the Bay Area, it's two to five million dollars for a home. I know that sounds crazy to some people who are living outside of New York, right. L.A., and uh, the Bay Area. When you start talking about private aviation or a second home, that's when a founder's completely, completely <laughs> off the reservation, they've jumped the fence, they're distracted. Yep. Because I can tell you, well, you know, and I'm 53 now, when I got my second home at the age of 50, and I had a ski house, my life became like super complex. Oh, there's a second house. And I have not gotten private aviation, I literally have. And I, you know, have been sitting there with the jet card in my email box ready to sign and Just didn't do it. Because I was like, you know what? I just want to stay focused and be normal. Once I start taking private jets, I'm just disconnected. I kind of like meeting people at the airport. The fact that I can fly business class is a big enough win for me. You know, it's like delightful to be in United or American Airlines business or first. Good enough for me as a kid from Brooklyn. So, and I can tell you the number that was crazy was, I don't know if you had anybody with exposure, Michael, to the Hoppen founder, uh, which my friend Gerstner had access to. He took 200 million off during COVID great move on his part that was insane and um, then there was bird and i think the bird founder somebody whispered to me that they may have taken 50 million off the table of the scooter company
1: he got right. a nice place place in miami yeah.
0: there's your point like how focused are you going to be as a 30 year old person with a mansion or two
1: yeah
2: well you know the other thing that was driving this at least in the zerp era was the late stage guys as a way of competing were saying hey let's do a founder secondary we'll buy the mm. shares mm. and then post money, post close, we will give you more options. So in, to be honest, in a way, that's bribery. And that's actually how uh, some firms are competing in order it's to so win gross. a competitive deal at the late stage. And yeah. you know who gets screwed in that is the early stage investors, right? It and, and such a good point.
0: And this is like the dark underbelly. Um, and we fought it. And I, you know, that now you put me in a really weird position. I'm trying to protect my LPs as the seed investor in the company. We own 10%. You come in and say hey we're going to give the founders this offer to win the deal so we'll put in a hundred million and we're going to buy 25 million of their shares uh and we're only going to buy the founder shares not the other employee shares and then who is the founder going to say they want as their new partner at the board meeting exactly firm a or b well b is offering me 25 million dollars and they said we'll re-up you in the option pool so that's a bribe it's literally a bribe and i was in a board meeting michael saying hey guys, um, we should fork this conversation. Let's make a pure fundraising decision for all shareholders and then make the secondary decision and the re-ups for founders at the first board meeting after we close that. And you know what happened? I lost. Oh, yeah. And I was the bad guy for bring, even bringing it up, you know, because it's not founder friendly.
2: Yeah. Uh, that, uh, that's, this is in the past though. I don't think a lot of that's happening no. now, right? Oh, so. zero.
0: None of it's yeah. happening now. Yeah.
2: Right, but that that did happen, so that everyone knows. Uh, in in the past five six years, I mean, that was, I wouldn't wow. say it was common, but it was it was happening, and that's how later stage firms were competing. And you know, they're making their best offer, and you know, they're appealing to some of the short term thinking of the founders. If you wanted to be generous, you could say short term thinking. It's not a criticism of the founders because they're just no. acting rationally, right? So it's an offer. We have multiple offers, offers yeah.
0: and we, we pick the one that's best for us. Yeah. So you, right. don't, you don't blame exactly. it, but it's bad hygiene. I think for sure. and it's as Michael was saying, it doesn't exist anymore, but yeah. yeah. Wow. That's a good first topic. <laughs> <laughs> we, went, we went deep on some inside information on how things work yeah. in Silicon Valley. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Speaking of inside information, uh, no longer inside information and in a move that's done the VC community, Keith Herboy is leaving founders fund and going to Kosla as a managing director. Uh, Keith was previously at Khosla for six years prior to moving to Founders Fund in 2019, where he was a partner for five years. The announcement of Keith Raboi returning came shortly after Kosla announced their $3.1 billion fundraise across their main, their seed, and their opportunity fund. So Keith will have a lot of capital to play with. When asked about the change, Keith stated that KOSLA's culture of weekly partner meetings, which included debate, and Kosla's hands-on investing approach and founder men- mentorship was a better fit for him than Founders Fund's more individualistic approach. Jason, are you buying this? Is this the reason Keith uh, moved to KOSLA?
0: Well, so there's there's two things occurring here that I think are of note. Uh, number one, this is secession planning. I didn't see anybody mention that. But Kosla um is in his 70s. Um he's spry. He was at the All In Summit. He is sharp as attack. But, you know, he he's in his 70s. And so I think this will be Kosla Raboy as a firm very soon. And I think whenever Kosla decides to hang it up, this will be Raboy, Keith Raboy's firm. Number two, there is Something to Keith about debate. You see him on podcasts. You see him on Twitter. He made a funny comment on this podcast. You know, well I was on the internet, and somebody said something that was incorrect, so I felt the need to correct them. Like literally, <laughs> that's how he's wired. If somebody on the internet says something that's incorrect, he will correct them, and you know, wrong. feel like this. Your actions. That's wrong. a big Let burden. It's a, well, with you know, four or five billion people on the internet, it's a full time job. But I, you know, Vinod loves. Keith, because they're both candid and they're both like debaters. Now you go to Founders Fund and you think about Peter Thiel, and obviously Peter and Keith and Sachs all went to Stanford together, Stanford Review, all that kind of stuff. They're all part of the same clique. But there, there, there does need to be a recognition of the culture at a firm. How does this firm make decisions? And, and that's something I've learned being an LP in 20 funds. I always ask about that. And then I've really worked on it at launch how do we make decisions, we have deal flow locked in, we don't have to compete for deals, because I have a, a good profile and I act at the seed stage where this generally it's not as cutthroat It's passing the hat a lot. So then what's left, really two things I have to really solve for, do we make great decisions? And do we double down, which is also a decision. And, and that's what I've obsessed with. And I think at Founders Fund, Brian Singerman's approach has been hire really smart people, make bets that they have conviction on or let them start their own companies and then in every fund put a third or some crazy number, he's told me, into one giant bet. And, uh, you know, that's a different culture than, say, is going for. And so I think it's great to have that recognition that different cultures work. There's consensus-based cultures. There's solo freelancing kind of based cultures. And I don't my question for Michael Kim is, do you have a preference... For the decision-making culture, or do you see one win more than others?
2: Yeah, I mean, a lot of the platform firms you can say are more siloed. Uh, partners are more siloed, and they have the authority to go ahead and make a decision. Founders Fund, clearly, absolutely top-tier firm, um, and they've done very, very well with their model. Um, you know, one 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 example um, to just uh, to amplify what Jason was saying. You know, when they raised F- F- Founders Fund three they immediately put a quarter of that into Palantir. (laughs) And that was a brilliant move. Wow. Um, And in Founders Fund 2, you know, uh, they actually sold, uh, well, so Yammer was in there, uh, David company, prior company. They took the proceeds from that. And then Peter went and, you know, basically uh, took cash capital out of the different funds that he had. And he put it all into Airbnb. And that wow. was a brilliant move. That they was recycled it. Yeah. yeah, they recycled it. And, you know, I think that kind of decision making and non consensus thinking and high conviction, non social proof investing is, is brilliant, but mm. it's not for everybody. And, right. you know, the typical VC firm does have their Monday meetings where they sit around and, and argue about uh, specific companies, and that, that works well, too, because there's that sort of um, you know, pushback that a particular partner might have on a company that he or she might be in love with. And in, in getting that feedback on additional diligence or why it won't work, um, I think is important. But so it, it really depends on the type of people and how they're making the decision as opposed to this is the uh, uh, all, you know, it, it's, it's one size fit all kind of decision making.
0: It also depends on, to your point, I think, Michael, is, is this firm, you know, nurturing and developing talent, which our firm is doing, we're teaching people the skill of being a VC, because we're, we're small, we can't afford to compete for, you know, with Sequoia for partners, given the scale of their fund. So, you know, we're training up talent. So, we need to have more meetings. We need to have more debate. That's how people get good at the job. They, they put out their deal memo. They say, hey, this is, we were having an argument today. Uh, non consensus argument, I want to put $25,000, which is our founder university bet, you know, first check into a company to help them form the company for 2.5%. And there was like a, a nice debate going on about this company. And I just came in and I said, Okay, the person who wants to make this bet owns it, we're making the 25k bet, we don't have to over debate it. But I love the debate, great debate. And the debate was so good in our organization. And we have such a high volume of companies as an accelerator and a pre accelerator. We instituted two investment team meetings a week. Every Tuesday, every Thursday, we do an investment team meeting. And 1.30 till 3.30, you know, it's, this is not a short amount of time, four hours of it a week. We now record it, transcribe it, and summarize it. That's like crazyville, but I want to have on tape the discussions and the transcript so we can go do a post-mortem. Right. Oh, we didn't invest in Airbnb. What was the discussion? Who is the loudest person in the room saying, don't do it? Who is the loudest person in the room saying, we have to do it? And and so I'm very keyed into this as I go into my second decade and I try to build a firm. Like I'm trying to build a firm right now, right? It's a different thing than just be great individually.
2: But I think, you know, I I, I don't know Keith personally, but my immediate thought was when I read the news, Kosla must have offered him some sort of assurance, if not an agreement, that he would be taking over the firm. Yes,
0: 100%.
2: And I think... If you even go further back, koslo was at KP back in the, in the heyday, right? Yep. And if you read uh, Sebastian Malaby's book, Power Law, each chapter is about different firms. The KP for, uh, chapter really talks about how in the early 2000s, you know, there are, there are uh, KP's sort of uh, on Mount Olympus and then they started hiring old guys and you know, like Al Gore or like Colin Powell. Whereas uh, in the chapter on Sequoia, makes it crystal clear that they were very focused on generational transitions. Bringing Alfred on Roloff, Lynn, Roloff. Bringing in Alfred and how the senior partners like Doug Leone would specifically put them on high-profile boards and mentor them and giving them more airtime, giving them more, um, more decision-making um, and, and, and basically building their gravitas. And I think those, those two chapters really stand out. So my, my point here is that you know, obviously, Kosal left KP, and I think he probably is a, a very wise observer of venture capital funds, and so he must be thinking about uh, succession. I would also argue that he's probably a very young 70. If the, I don't know his exact age, but let's say he's 70. He probably has another 10 years to go. So I, I don't think it's an imminent kind of thing, but um, it's, it's, uh, it shows a lot of foresight.
1: With all the longevity investments he's making, I think he's going to be around, <laughs> around for a while. He also reported in the same article that he didn't want to start his own fund due to the operational intensity. How do you look at that, Michael? What are the pros and cons if Keith was to leave and start his own firm? I mean, clearly he could do it. H- how much do you think he'd be able to raise as a spin out?
2: You know, Lee Fixel left Tiger and raised billion dollar funds every, uh, every year almost. So, you know, I think Keith is... In that league, or even above that, and or certainly peers. And, you know, Keith could raise that kind of capital. I don't, I have no doubt about that. The question is what kind of investing does he want to do? And what, you know, ultimately, what's the appropriate fund size, right? If he wants to have a barbell strategy where he's investing in a bunch of early stage companies and then perhaps uh, selectively late stage companies where he can write $100 million checks. You know, so it really depends on the type of investing that he really likes i my my sense is that he likes to be hands on and really work with founders and that suggests to me early stage investing so you know a uh, three to five hundred million dollar series A fund out out the gate with some seed exposure
0: and the question is, you know when you become a fund manager and you start raising larger funds, I'm experiencing that in the last six months, I have to go to the Middle East, I have to go to New York, I got to go to Europe, I got to, you know, do phone calls at 10pm, I have to do relationship calls, you know, and maintenance calls. So when you have to take over that function, I think that's a 12 month ramp up. So then does Keith, at his age, want to spend a year raising that fund? And even if he did it extraordinarily quickly in six months, it's possible, it's just not probable. And the environment right now is really challenged. Even if he wanted to go raise that fund, there are people who are pencils down right now. I mean, Michael's active, but- That's true too. I, I can tell you three out of five, maybe LPs in the United States are pencils down. 60, 70% are like, when's your closing date? Because we're done for this year, right? And that was 2023. And we're going to open up two slots in 2024. And uh, we'll see what happens from there if we get Stripe distributions <laughs> or tense distributions, etc. So- you, know, you got to decide how much of that overhead and then starting a firm you have to do all this back office stuff you got to hire operations people like this is it's it's not de minimis it is significant and you have to do it right and we had some missteps as a firm uh we you know with back office stuff and man i had to do cleanup and you know if you're if your numbers aren't clean, and you go to somebody like michael or you know let's say the next tier up the calpers of the world or you know, etc. It could just be a no based on you not having your package and your data room correct, right? Like, like, a venture right. Fund, and so.
1: oftentimes, they won't even tell you why. Uh, they'll just say thank, thank you very much. Yeah, well,
2: one thing I'd point out, and, and J. Cal makes an excellent point about where LPs are today, you know, I think with someone special starting a new firm, then you might get some FOMO. And it's almost like fuel gauges, the fuel gauge might read empty, But I read somewhere that there's probably another 40 to 60 miles of range. And so, yeah, I think LPs would be able to find the the capital to make a commitment to someone special. And I think Keith would probably be in that category.
0: Uh, Yeah, I would agree with that. They would, but it would still take three meetings and it would take a champion and it would take somebody saying to the investment board and the investment committee, hey, here's why we're making this exception, right? And I'm sure Keith, you know, he just loves to invest. He likes to hang out with founders. I get the sense that he probably doesn't, All well due respect to Michael who's delightful to hang out with, but Keith might not want to hang out with, you know, a bunch of the LPs all the time. Yeah. It might right. not be his bag. He might just want to, at this point in his career is so successful, he just might want to invest in the next company. Absolutely. And I don't think it's a huge loss for Founders Fund. I think they're going to do great no matter what. That's one of the things, when you have that many great partners, you can afford to lose one, right? It's like being a team with a stacked group of all-stars, right, you, you, you'll, he'll be, they'll be fine too.
2: Yeah, I mean, Kevin Hartz was there, right? And for a couple of years and he moved on, started A-Star, you know, uh, nothing uh, um, against any of these groups, but, you know, that's actually the mark of a resilient firm, a, a very strong firm. You know, you lose a star partner or someone who's very promising, you'll continue on. And I think Sequoia is a very good example of that.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Great. And next up, Bill Ackman, everyone's favorite modern day conqueror has decided to go after Business Insider after Business Insider went after his wife, Neri. According to the timeline of events, Business Insider sent Bill Ackman's wife, Neri, a 12-page email on January 5th at 5.19 p.m. Eastern. Business Insider then gave Neri only one and a half hours to respond to a 12-page email before publishing their allegations. Jason, what do you think of this? Was Business Insider within its rights to go after Bill Ackman's wife?
0: There's kind of a rule, like in the mafia uh, and in other, you know, areas where respect is important. You know, you don't go after wives and kids. Like, you would never do that. It's it's not appropriate. Um, in this case, because Bill was going after other people for plagiarism and his wife happens to be in academia, uh, academia it feels like it's fair game in a way, but... Yeah, I think that broadening the discussion out here for this podcast, you have some very vocal fund managers out there, and some of them have gotten very addicted, I would say, uh, to social media and being heard. The All In podcast, you know, has become a bit of a joke to some people, like, oh my God, what are we going to think about what's happening in this area of the world, this conflict, this crazy thing? Um, Oh, I know, we have to ask some VCs, like, I I can imagine (laughs) being an LP enactments fund you know or anybody else's fund who's taking on these really charged issues and wondering are they focused on their fund and their companies and their trades or are they focused on you know dei at harvard in this battle so i think you know while i appreciate him defending his wife and fighting the good fight and everything like that i do wonder i don't know michael if watching you know gps be spicy on social media or their podcasts, et etc. Does that factor into the public personas and chippiness and elbows and craziness, your decision making or how you partner with folks? Or are you no. think it's just part of being? Successful? It's part of being
2: human. And yeah. I think, you know, people might have larger platforms than other people. And if they can use that for good, which I think Bill Ackman is doing, um, I'm all in favor of that. And you know, the, the thing about Bill Ackman and his firm, Pershing Square, they're activist investors, right? So, by definition, uh, Bill is someone who's going to lead a crusade. And, you know, I think overall his, his funds have done well. I mean, I think there are some notable um, problem childs like Valiant, for example, um, but in Herbalife. But as, as a person, I think it also, October 7th, you know, a, a light bulb went on. And the, the testimony that the three presidents had in front of Congress, that was another light bulb. And then he started digging in because it's clear that he's intellectually curious and, oh, by the way, a crusader. And, you know, so that's how he got onto that. And then to your point, uh, Jason, you know, they went after his wife, you know, B.I. went after his wife. And that's verboten. You can't do that. And yeah. or, or your, to people's families. So he went after he, he's he's on a he's on a warpath.
1: And Michael, if you uh, turn the tables, limited partners, obviously, there was Harvard, MIT, and Penn involved on the other end with the presidents. Could limited partners in what people call an access class could limited partners hurt themselves on their end?
2: I think so. I mean, I think you know, um certain firms that really have that that you know really have no issue raising their next uh, their next funds, um, you know, sort of the the absolute top tier. VC firms. Let's just focus on VC. You know they can pick and choose who their LPs are, and if there is a strong belief that you know, just to pick on Harvard, that Harvard now is completely overrun by uh, a 200 person DI department, and it, it, it's insidious and it's it permeating through all of the the hiring that they're doing, the areas the areas of study that they focus on, and the courses that they offer their students. Uh, an absolute top tier firm who does not believe in that could say, "Why am I funding this? Because the fact mm-hmm. is, a large chunk of a university's operating budget comes from the proceeds of an endowment. It has so to be five percent a
0: year, right? Like they have to at minimum. at minimum. But yeah. I, I know
2: universities where it's like half or forty percent mm-hmm. annually, wow. and so the VC returns the distributions that I'm happily sending back to my LPs then there's this uh, epiphany that well some of that is actually ultimately funding these programs that i don't don't believe in mm. so i so think who it's am i really going to work for, for
0: right and i think when you yeah. become elite at this job it's such a good point mike you made two really good points number one thank you Ackman's an activist like what do we expect him to do when he sees something that he perceives as unjust in the world but number two such a good point. You know, when I, as a founder, would go to Sequoia's, fa- they would have a CEO dinner. It was kind of like a DL thing, but they would have all the uh, uh, CEOs come to the golf course over there. And, and Michael Moritz would come up and say, Oh, just would like to tell you what you're working for. And uh, the great returns we had, the returns from Google uh, helped in uh, Ford Foundation do the following. And they'd show what the Ford Foundation was working on. And here's an email we got from this foundation. Here's what they're doing in Africa, you know, with you know, malaria, whatever. And he would walk the CEOs, skipping the LPs, right? This is just GP to CEO, your hard work, lets us make money and give it back to these incredible causes. And you were just like, wow, capitalism is awesome. And, and those same people as Michael's pointing out, they they may not want to give to these endowments anymore. And they might not want to make money for them anymore. So that you know, they could lose two sources of revenue, the donations and oh, I want to have my name on a building, right? And number two, I, I want to take the what, what are they? They're usually typically fifteen percent in VC, 10, 15%. Yeah. Some of them have gotten up to 25 percent, like Yale and I but think certainly like
2: thirty plus percent for private markets, right? Including PE. Yeah. Yeah. Including yeah.
0: PE, yeah. So I mean it's it's a double th- that's why I think this is like an important thing to discuss here is who are you making money for? And and are you motivated to make money for those people? Um, it's a really nuanced point, but an important one.
2: Yeah. But then also sort of uh, a related topic is, and I'll I'll mention it since uh, Jason, you mentioned the Middle East, you know, how do you decide which authoritarian countries endowment um, Mm or sovereign sovereign wealth fund that you feel comfortable enough taking, you know, Um, and, you know, there's kind of a danger in getting on a moral high horse, to be honest. And, um, we don't have capital from any sovereign wealth funds. But I would say that, you know, I hear amongst uh, LPs and US LPs, and also US fund managers, some debate about should I take money from uh, an authoritarian company, uh, country's, uh, uh, you know, sovereign wealth fund. So th- yeah. there's, I think there's debate about that too.
0: And I've, I'm, I've been very public that I've been spending time there. I don't have any announcements of, of efforts we have in the region, but I did meet with everybody. And I was doing it more to get educated, to be totally honest. I felt when we would have these conversations on all in and, you know, I'm kind of thrust into this position of, you know, needing to have an opinion or be at least educated. But I hadn't been to Saudi. I hadn't been to Dubai. I hadn't been to Doha. And, uh, you know, and having spent time there now, uh, two trips uh, in the last year, basically in the spring and the fall. I feel really educated. And um, my first job was working at Amnesty International. Most people don't know that, but I'm very passionate about human really? rights.
2: Okay. Yeah. yeah.
0: When I was in college in New York, I just felt passionate about because I had seen Peter Gabriel and Bruce Springsteen play at the Human Rights Now concert. And I was like, wow, I really care about human rights. It just spoke to me as a 18, 19 year old in college when I was at Fordham. And I was an IT specialist there. And uh, now I'm an adult and I'm in a position of power or you know, writing checks and you know, people are knocking on the door and I've met with them. And I've come to the conclusion, and, and people can come to different conclusions, and I respect it, that this group of the monarch states, right? They want to have a seat at the table. They're investing, they're LPing, and, and they're going to be on the same boards of the companies we're all investing in. They've decided in the next thirty years, and they've said this to me explicitly: we can sell oil for thirty more years is our projections, and in that time, we're going to convert our economies to tourism, real estate private equity, alternative fuel, and venture capital. And venture capital is one of their favorite assets. Private equity, not so much, they did that game. They really like company formation. They have a large amount of capital and they're very smart. And these are multi-generational folks who've been educated in the West. This is the other thing I learned when I was there, all the people who are our contemporaries, they went to Oxford, they went to Michigan State, they went to Georgetown, they went to Fordham, they went to NYU, because they were all on these scholarships that were set up for the nationals there. They're very westernized and the countries are making massive progress on personal freedoms uh, and economic freedoms. Now, they're not democracies, but they've made progress. And so then the question is, you have to ask yourself, do I want to participate with a group of people who are making massive progress and bending towards you know a better world? Or do I yeah, not want exactly. to participate and then have them work with Putin and Xi Jinping? Because if you just take a look at what's happening in the region as well, Xi Jinping, and Putin are spending a lot of time there as well, and I think we're at this very interesting moment in time where either that region is going to tip one way or the other, and it's their choice. And so, if we don't participate and you know build companies with them, well, then they're going to build them with Xi Jinping and and, and Putin. I, that's not a better scenario for humanity either. And um, they really want to reform. You, you know, you go to Dubai now; it reminds me of New York in the '90s. I went to Riyadh and. You know, it has changed more in the last three years than in thirty. And I'm pretty enthusiastic about the entrepreneurial scene there as well. People from Hong Kong, Singapore, India, they're all moving their companies to Doha, Abu Dhabi, uh, Dubai, and Riyadh because there's angel investors and seed funds there and programs there and golden visas where they'll give you a visa for 10 years. So they're gonna be a player. The question is, do we wanna participate, Mike, or not? And, you know, I, I think I'm coming to the conclusion that if you build startups together and you build businesses together, that's pretty good for the world. I think one person's belief, one person's belief. I totally agree. So absolutely. It's an important topic. And I, you know, I'll probably make an announcement later this year that we're, you know, might be doing something there in relation to the things I'm known for. (laughs) I'll leave it at that.
1: Okay, great. Spicy. Well, well, Michael, I uh, really appreciate you jumping, jumping on the podcast and discussing yeah. these topics and uh, hope to see you soon. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, great job, Michael. Really appreciate it. Nice to see you guys. Take care. All right, David, great job. You've done two great episodes with me. I really appreciate it. And if you don't know about the Liquidity Podcast, I used to call it the Angel Podcast, but because our conference and what I do is expanding beyond just angel investors to include LPs and GPs. Uh, decided to rebrand, so the Angel Summit we do in June will be called Liquidity, and uh, we're spinning out this content and having this Liquidity podcast, which is a niche niche broadcast for LPs and GPs. David you did a great job today. Awesome.
1: Thank you, Jason. Uh, thank thank you for your mentorship and for uh, for for being a great model for moderation.
0: Oh, thank you. And where can people follow you on social media? You got a social? Are you on I, the social media X dot com? For sure,
1: you, you could follow me on X D D-Weisberg, D W E I S B U R D, and you could also follow me on my podcast where I interview limited partners, yes. including Michael Kim,
0: and I yes. even had
1: Jake Al on the episode called "The Limited Great Partner." One. So check and it out. And you just
0: had Friedberg on. Great, I job did have him. Friedberg.
1: That's. a oh, did Did you a, talk
0: about all in at all? I looked in the chapter headings. We he did not.
1: Me. We talked about. We talked about uh, his life as an investment banker. Did you know I No,
0: I heard about that. No All In talk. I thought for sure you were going to ask him about All In.
1: Uh, no, I tried, tried to uh, vary it Keep up it. a little bit. Keep it interesting. Very good. Very good.
0: All right. We'll see. You. Oh, and so if you're having a chance, uh, when, if you get on the liquidity feed or you search for liquidity podcast in your podcast player, subscribe there. Probably once a week-ish. Uh, and you'll get information about the event in June. It'll be June 2nd, 3rd, and 4th, I believe, in uh, Napa for LPs and GPs only. Uh, and angel investors, high net worth individuals who participate in the space. And we have a YouTube channel search for liquidity podcast on there. You'll probably find it and liquiditypod.com has all the links So if you have a chance and you like this subscribe to it or rate it That would be helpful because this is episode zero and the handle everywhere instagram tiktok youtube Everywhere, uh twitter x is liquidity pod liquidity pod and we got a nice beautiful logo for you. All right. We'll see you next time